the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight, and I'll be back with you again tomorrow as well. If you're not familiar with Powerline, I'd recommend you check it out. Uh, We've uh, had the website going since uh, the spring of 2002, and uh, the URL is powerlineblog.com, or you can just Google Powerline, either one word or two, and we are the very first thing that will come up. So uh, it's great to be with you again again tonight. I want to start this hour... Uh, talking about the election that is still playing out. They're, they're, they're still counting votes, and uh, there's not a single state that has so far certified its election results. And so we're seeing a lot of premature calls for President Trump to concede, to uh, be gentlemanly and shake Joe Biden's hand and congratulate him on his great victory. And uh, instead of doing that, uh, President Trump has been filing lawsuits. There are multiple lawsuits filed in several states, including, um, including Pennsylvania and, uh, and Michigan. And, and it could be a while. In fact, it will be a while, uh, inevitably, before these lawsuits have played out and, and we have a final result and a final certification, right or wrong, of, uh, of the presidential election. And, and I think one point that it's really important to make, uh, because uh, I'm about to, uh, uh, to, to deliver what I think is some, some bad news for most of our listeners, but I think it's important to, to frame it in this way. Uh, we may never know uh, the answer to this question for sure. In fact, I think it's probable that we'll never know for sure. If, if, if we were omniscient, if, we, if, we, uh, if, if, every, if this was a, was a pure election in which only legal voters voted, no illegal aliens, no dead people, no people who have moved to a different state, et cetera, uh, and everybody only voted once, right, uh, who would then have been the winner of the presidential election? As I say, we may never know the answer to that question. My best guess from studying the numbers is that Donald Trump actually did win the presidential election this year, if we had a fair and accurate vote count in every state. Uh, And I think the Democrats, well, I think it's clear that the Democrats went to great lengths to try to steal this election, or if you don't like the word steal, to try to make sure that they won it uh, one way or or another, either legitimately or otherwise. And, And the real question is not, did they do that? The real question is not, was there widespread voter fraud in this election? Because I think the evidence is overwhelming that there was widespread voter fraud, widespread uh, cheating. The real question, I think, is, has the election been stolen successfully or unsuccessfully? In other words, there are, there are, there are some wrongs for which there is no remedy. And, and there have been elections in the past, there's no doubt about it, where, where parties and candidates have gotten away. 
uh, with uh, irregularities, have gotten away with outright fraud in election results. Lyndon Johnson, to name just one, was, was kind of renowned for his ability to do that. And so I think the real question is, uh, looking at the landscape as we see it today, is there a realistic chance that uh, whatever whatever irregularities occurred, uh, whatever illegality occurred in this election, it can be remedied in a way that would uh, result in a Trump victory? And I'm afraid the answer to that question is almost certainly no. And, and I want to talk about that by picking up or uh, starting with um, – with uh, my friend Byron York's Daily Memo newsletter, which came out this morning, which gives us a good update on on where we stand in some of the key states. And Byron's conclusion is that uh, so far, uh, nine days after the election, the Trump campaign has not filed a challenge in any state that appears likely to overturn the result in that state. And and so I think a starting point is what what is the current what are the current vote totals in the key states and and the answer is none of them frankly are all that close. Uh, in Pennsylvania, Joe Biden's lead currently is fifty three thousand two hundred and forty four votes. Uh, in Michigan, uh, Biden's lead is even wider; it's one hundred and forty eight thousand six hundred and forty five votes. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, Biden's lead is twenty thousand five hundred and forty six votes. Uh, there's going to be a recount in Georgia, also Wisconsin. Uh, In Georgia, Biden's lead is currently uh, 14,057 votes. In Arizona, Biden still leads as the the end of that count is finally approaching. Biden leads in Arizona by 11,635 votes. Now, in order to win the presidency, uh, Donald Trump, to be be reelected to the presidency, Donald Trump would have to flip the result in three of those states. And that, that is a really daunting proposition. And I think the first thing uh, that that needs to be understood is that a recount is just that. It's a recount. And there are recounts underway in uh, in uh, Wisconsin and, and soon to begin in Georgia. But a recount, uh, it, you know, it doesn't go into the question of the validity of the of the votes. Uh, it, it just retabulates them. And if there's a bunch of illegal votes, you know, that have already gone through the machines or have already been, been tabulated, uh, it's not going to revisit them on an individual basis. And, and Carl Rove points out that in, in the last 50 years, there have only been three recounts that overturned the results of statewide elections. There was a Senate race in New Hampshire in 1974, a governor's race in Washington State in 2004, and a Senate race in Minnesota, my home state, in 2008. I remember that one very well. That was Norm Colbin and Al Franken. And, and, and in those three races, Kyle Rove points out, uh, before the recount, uh, those candidates were separated by 355, 261, and 215 votes. So there's never been a recount in the last 50 years that overturned an election result where the apparent winner was even 1,000 votes ahead, let alone 50,000, 100,000, 20,000. And so a recount uh, does not hold out any substantial hope, in my opinion, of, of reversing the result in any state. Now, if you look at the lawsuits that, that President Trump has filed, uh, and Byron's conclusion is that none of these lawsuits have a realistic chance of overcoming the kind of margins that we're talking about. And I think that's true. But I would point out, we spent a lot of time on the show yesterday uh, talking about the election in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. We're going to talk more about that tonight as well. 
And and I talked about the, the lawsuit that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign, rather, along with two individuals has filed in, in Pennsylvania. And and one of the allegations, one of the central allegations of, of that complaint is that in just two counties, Philadelphia County and Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh, there were something like, I think the number is 672,000, 678,000 ballots, some, something like that that were illegally counted without the presence of a Republican observer to verify that only legitimate ballots were being counted, that they're being counted correctly, in, in clear violation of Pennsylvania law, no doubt about it. Uh, Republican observers were first just barred from the polls completely, and then they went to court, they got a court order, and, um, and the Democrats then reluctantly let the Republicans into the polling, the places where the votes are being tabulated, but they stationed them where they weren't able to actually see anything. So they could, they could stand there and watch the Democrats count the ballots, but they couldn't do anything to verify that they were counting them correctly or that they were counting only valid ballots. Uh, and, and so one of the um, one one relief that the uh, Trump campaign is asking for in the Pennsylvania lawsuit is to throw out all of those 672, whatever that number is, ballots that were illegally counted in Philadelphia County and Allegheny County. And, and if that relief were granted in the federal courts, uh, I haven't seen the numbers on how exactly those 600 and some thousand ballots broke down, but those counties are heavily Democratic. And uh, my assumption is that if you actually threw out uh, somewhere between 600,000 and 700,000 ballots on that basis, that they were they were illegally counted without a Republican poll observer, I think that would change the result in Pennsylvania and give that state to Donald Trump. The problem is that there's not a judge in this country, there's not a judge in the world that is going to disenfranchise, you know, 670,000 Pennsylvania voters by throwing out all those ballots. Um, it's just not going to happen. And so we're left with a situation where it is clear that laws were violated. There's no question about that. Uh, it is it is reasonable to assume that the Democrats violated those laws because they intended to cheat. Why else would you prevent Republican poll watchers from doing their jobs? Obviously, you do that because you're planning on cheating. So I don't think there's any serious doubt about the fact that fraud occurred on really what I would call an industrial scale. There's many other allegations in that complaint, too, but that's just one of them. There's many others that are wide-ranging. So I don't, I don't think there's any question that in some of these states, voter fraud occurred, irregularities occurred really on an, on an industrial scale. But I don't see that any of the lawsuits now pending has got a realistic chance of overturning the apparent result in any of those five key states, let alone three of them, which is what would have to happen for President Trump to be reelected. So, sorry to, to bring you bad news, but that's the way it looks to me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are pleased now to welcome Dr. Dominic Green to the program. Dominic is the Life and Arts editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for being on the program. Great to be here. Thank you. Dominic, you've got a, a piece just a couple of days ago in The Spectator called The Democrats 
civil war begins. And, and, and you talk there about the, the conflict that's now erupting between uh, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party and the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. And I want to start with this question, Dominic. Is there really a, a moderate wing of the Democratic Party? And, and if so, where well, is it? I, 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 I just I'm not seeing the pushback. I'm not seeing the, the, the moderate Democrats who, you know, distance themselves from some of the appalling things that the that the left is doing. Well, I think you're right on that one. They haven't distanced themselves. Um, but what we do know is, as the old saying goes, resistance is futile. And uh, what we're seeing is the resistance. The people who told us Trump was a fascist, that it was the end. The people who told us they were like the French resistance and so on. These people are not getting invited to what they consider to be their just reward uh, for all of that outrage, all of that protesting and rioting all of that hysteria that we have endured for four years. Instead, this administration, incoming Biden administration, as things now stand anyway, looks like being Obama part three. In other words, technocratic, managerial, a bit suspicious of democracy in general, contemptuous even of large amounts of the American people, and certainly not the kind of government that, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or any other members of the squad would like to see. Well, one of the things that we're seeing post-election, Dominic, is this Leninist um, effort uh, by a lot of people on 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 the left, and but also in, you know in the mainstream Democratic Party, um, to to banish uh, Trump supporters and anybody who worked in the Trump administration, not just from public life but from private life, prevent them from ever getting a job again. I mean, this is really really uh, scary stuff. Yes, and I mean, the people doing it are striking as well. One of these lists of, of, you know, culprits to be driven out of public life forever, uh, one of these lists is, is compiled by people who work for Pete Buttigieg, who, again, as I, you know, I was referring to the next Biden administration looking technocratic and managerial. Well, Pete Buttigieg is technocratic and managerial, and look at the kind of people who, who are with him. They have absolutely no respect for any difference of opinion. And this list, an enterprising lawyer, got hold of this list before the people who made it hid it from view. And it runs over 12 pages. And it even includes people who have worked in the White House as stenographers. In other words, not making policies, just writing down what's going on around them, which is their job. There's even blacklisted people doing, I don't know if they got the the cleaners, perhaps they got them, said they will never wield a vacuum cleaner again in the precincts of the District of Columbia. But really, to go after people who have no ideological bent in this, who are simply doing their jobs, it's quite shocking. And there is no real precedent for this, in fact, in in a handover um, between presidencies. And that is the mentality, you're right, of, of the revolutionary wing of the party. The, the squad and, and Antifa and, all of, and so on, the hard left. And it shows just how far that sort of attitude has percolated into, again, what you would think or would be the mainstream or the moderates. Yeah, and this goes back to my point, Dominic. I mean, I have, I have not seen a single mainstream Democratic Party politician or, you know, even pundit um, uh, push back on this, this effort to attack uh, anybody who ever worked in the Trump administration, including, as you say, as a, as a cleaner in the White House, a stenographer in the White House, uh, and trying to prevent them from ever getting a job again. I mean, uh, have you seen any Democrat push back against this really Stalinist effort? Not yet, but I suspect the reason is this, that 
so long as there is any doubt over the election, and I'm, I'm strongly of the school that says if people do have doubts, then they absolutely have to check and recheck and make sure that the law has been observed, however long it takes. But so long as there are those doubts, of course, there is at the back of their minds, the Democrats are thinking, well, we could actually slip up here and lose this still. And so they are using, in a way, that energy from their radical wing, as they've done all the way, they are using that as, as a leverage. I have no doubt, though, that should everything shake out by the middle of December in Joe Biden's favor, that suddenly the drawbridge will go up. They will suddenly turn on the radicals and get back to what the Democratic Party's leaders like doing best, which is sitting in the swamp and basically shutting out the rest of the population. So already you can see people like Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez complaining that they're not being listened to. Uh, and the mutterings are, of course, from the from the moderate side, as they would think of themselves, they're saying, well, one of the reasons this election turned out so close is that so many people were turned off by the radicalism, by the rioting, by the fanaticism, and by the, the policing of what people can say and think and so on. It's often said in, in recent days, you know, this election, uh, if it's won by Joe Biden, it's because people voted against Donald Trump in crucial areas. But also they voted against the Democrats, seeing them as being weak on their own fanatics. And that's one reason, of course, why Trump's turnout was, was millions of votes higher than his turnout in 2016. Well, it's also a reason why the Republicans, uh, contrary to most predictions, have gained so far nine seats in the House and looks like they're going to hold the Senate. You know, you make a great point in your, your piece here, the Democrats' civil war begins, that a lot of people vote to protect themselves against the predations of government. And a lot of people think that divided government is a good way to do that. In other words, if you're going to have a Democratic president, well, let's have a Republican Senate, you know, to to, uh, to gum up the works. I think you're right about that. And I think that's a really positive factor for these two runoff elections uh, coming up in Georgia. What do you think about that? Oh, I, I, I think the Republicans are going to carry those runoff elections. They usually fare better in runoffs. And uh, in Georgia, of course, you'd expect them to. But it's true. And if you look at what we know so far about the people who voted for Trump, his electorate included a third of Latino voters, uh, a third of Asian voters, the highest uh, score yet among African-American voters, 18% of African-American men. Now, all of these numbers totally contradict the idea that he is the white supremacist candidate. It's completely daft, in fact, to claim that. And of course, the Democrats will, will claim that forever. But there is less and less uh, reason to, to, to even entertain that kind of accusation. Uh, what we're seeing instead is the development of what used to be called the party of capital and the party of the workers. And a long time ago, you could say, well, the Republicans were the party of business and capital and the Democrats were the party of the workers. But this is not FDR's America. What we are slowly seeing is the Republican Party is becoming a multiracial workers party. In other words, the people who have an economic state are becoming Republicans because they see that the Democrats are, are effectively the party of tax and spend and the party of Silicon Valley uh, the party of Wall Street, in other words, not the party that has the average American worker's interests at heart. And that, to me, is a very significant development. And the way that people have split their votes, as you're saying, it shows that they're aware that there's more at stake here than just the personalities or just restoring the Obama era rule. The kind of uh, politics we have, the kind of economy, the society we have, 
is very much at stake in this election. You can see people are voting accordingly. It shows that the electorate, as usual, are a lot smarter than most of the people running for office. I think that's exactly right. We are talking with Dominic Green, and we will be back with more with Dominic after these messages. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker, and we're talking with Dominic Green, life and arts editor of The Spectator. Dominic, next I want to ask you about a piece that you have in Cricket Magazine out of the U.K. talking about the prospect of a Kamala Harris presidency. Speaking as a conservative, I'm not sure which I fear more, a Joe Biden presidency or a Kamala Harris presidency. What do you think? Well, John, I suspect you may be in for the worst of both worlds. Um, Joe Biden is going to be 78 uh, later this month, and that would make him the oldest president yet. It would make him older than Ronald Reagan was uh, when he left office. Um, and, you know, there are 78-year-olds and there are 78-year-olds. My stepfather is 78. He beat me at tennis not long ago. Uh, on the other hand, I feel if I was to uh, play a couple of sets with Joe Biden, that I probably would wipe the floor with him. And I'm not much of a tennis player. The fact is, you only need to compare footage of Biden now with footage of Biden five, let alone 10 years ago, to see that he is not the same person that his, his gaffe propensity, which has always been an issue with him, had almost become uncontrollable, which, of course, is why he was hidden from the press all through the campaign. And it was, incidentally, the fact that we would suspect Kamala Harris is not far behind might also be a reason why she did not do a single press conference during the whole campaign. You know, it's really interesting, Dominic. I've never seen anything like it. And COVID was the excuse, of course. But we, but we saw a presidential campaign in which Joe Biden basically didn't leave his basement. You know, there were many days when he didn't do a thing and no public appearances. When he did, no, he, had these, he had these bizarre things where people would drive in. There'd be like 50 cars or, you know, he'd read off a teleprompter to a room with like eight people in it, all reporters sitting in chairs with white circles around them. I mean, you know, it was crazy. And it seems pretty obvious that the reason for that is because his handlers didn't think he was up to the task. No, he's not even up to the task of reading from the autocue. When he announces that, you know, I have the endorsement of General Stanley McGeneral, which is like a character from a Marx Brothers film. When he introduces his, his granddaughter, which is tragic, really, on election night, introduced his granddaughter as his dead son. You know, this is the materials of tragedy. It's very clear that if he's required to even be semi-spontaneous, that he has real trouble. And, you know, the world is, is not an easy place at the moment. The potential for disaster, for him saying the daftest thing, let alone the wrong thing, is very high. I imagine that he will be hidden from the media all the way through his time in the White House. Already, you have very strong supporters of the Democrats, you know, writers from the New Yorker and so on, complaining, well, we're not getting access to Biden and his people. And I was thinking, well, get used to it. You know, you were supporting him being hidden two weeks ago, and now it's a problem. But we're not going to see much of him because he's simply not up to scratch. And the question then is, what happens and when does it happen that Biden becomes unable to execute the office into which he's been elected? 
And that, I suspect, will come fairly soon. And there is the 25th Amendment. It's been used before uh, on grounds of health um, when uh, George W. Bush, um, twice, in fact, had uh, operations. Uh, he, you know, he was, he was out, he was, uh, the 25th Amendment knocked him out for a few hours. So uh, the mechanism is there. We also know that Nancy Pelosi has supported a bill recently proposed to uh, dust off the 25th Amendment, make it more of a weapon, to give the House a greater role in applying it. In other words, the skids are ready, and all Biden has to do is step on the banana peel. And that, of course, is well within his range. There's been a lot of speculation, you just touched on it, Dominic, that the Democrats are already planning. Uh, They're not waiting for Biden to deteriorate further, but they're already planning to, after a brief but decent interval, uh, ease him out and make camel of the president. Do do you think that's right? Um, I I have no evidence beyond what I've just said, but I strongly suspect it because he is simply not the most capable of all those people who were on the stage not so long ago looking for the Democratic nomination. He is simply not the most able. And Kamala Harris, let's not forget, dropped out in the very first round of the Democratic nomination process. She had no support from her party. She had a huge amount of support from the media, most of which support her, uh, any Democrat, but in particular they liked her. But no, the Democratic membership doesn't like her. The public didn't know her or didn't exactly love her. She has been put in that vice presidential slot as, you know, a manager for the interests that fund and manage the party. Assuming we do see a Kamala Harris uh, administration, we only have about 45 seconds left, Dominic, but just in a very briefly, what, what, you know, who is she? What would you expect? I generally don't know that she knows anything about the world outside Berkeley, California. I, I feel that it would be a pretty painful process for everybody in, in that uh, she has no great experience of governance, no great knowledge of the outside world. And very quickly, the United States' rivals will test the U.S. in the world because they're watching what's going on at the moment and they're watching the quality of the kind of people that are coming into the White House and thinking, this is fantastic. This is a break. So I'm not optimistic about how it would turn out. We will be back with more uh, from uh, Dominic Green after these messages on The Dan Proft Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Dr. Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of The Spectator. And Dominic, I want to move on to a new topic in this segment, and, and that is a piece that you have written that is going to be in the upcoming issue of The Spectator. So we've got kind of a sneak preview here for our our radio audience, and that's on a really interesting topic, which is the Middle Eastern policy that we are going to see out of a Biden-Harris administration. What, what, what do you say in that article? Well, and this is even hotter than being hot off the press because it hasn't even gone to the press yet. I think it, it goes out later today. So what, what I would say is this. Whatever people think of Donald Trump, his foreign policy has been a tremendous success. He's the first president in goodness knows how long to avoid foreign wars. He's revitalized NATO. He's brought about this astonishing sight of Israel and the Gulf Arab states making peace deals with each other, which was supposed to be impossible. Uh, And the potential for all of this 
to actually improve further is there. The question is, are the incoming people from the Biden administration, are they going to trash all of that purely for a mixture of ideological reasons and spite? And I'm afraid the signs already are in the first week since the election. Signs already are that that's exactly what they have in mind. One of the things that we're seeing from Joe Biden, but from a lot of Democrats, is their their policy views uh, seem to be driven in large part by doing the opposite of whatever Donald Trump did. You know, whatever Trump did, you know, we're going to do the opposite. And so, for example, we see Joe Biden talking about re-entering into the Iran deal, which you know seems to me to be on the one hand crazy but on the other hand essentially moot the iranians the mullahs already got their money you know they got their money up front from barack obama does it does it make any sense to be talking about you know trying to reactivate that that uh, iran deal no i don't you're completely right there about the crucial point which is whether or not one likes the iran deal we know what happened after 2015 we know the Iranians took this money and distributed it to terrorist groups all over the place. We know that they carried on developing massively powerful missiles. We know that the International Atomic Energy Inspectorate, working for the UN, said the Iranians wouldn't let them check up on what they were doing in their labs. In other words, we know that whatever the intentions behind the Iran deal, it didn't work. And to try and go back to it, therefore, is a double folly. And in fact, the initial signs from Tehran is that, no, we, we've got nothing to negotiate with. They, they're out of it and they know why they don't want to go back into it. They don't want to sit down and be held to account to the way that they have broken the Iran deal in law and in spirit over the intervening five years. So it's a crazy thing to do, and particularly at this moment, because America's historic allies in the region Israel, the Gulf states, have actually managed to settle their differences, which is an astonishing thing. And they've settled them, obviously, for very pragmatic reasons, which is Iran is a threat to all of them. But the potential there is twofold. One, greater peace in the Middle East, which is a massive interest for everybody concerned and would allow for American troops to be withdrawn from the region. The second thing that it does is it deters Iran. And this was a major achievement of the Trump administration in restoring its deterrence in the Persian Gulf, for instance. If the Biden administration then flips to Iran, in effect, it's making a conflict more likely. It's sending a signal to Iran that we're with you now, we're not with them. This is a very, very dangerous situation to act like that. And everything is already you know, on a knife edge. And the Biden administration showed every sign of tipping it dangerously towards war, as it's saying, for spite, because this was what Trump did. In the attempt, just as uh, people would like to have a list of those who supported Trump who should never be allowed to work again, there's a list of policies which, because they succeeded under Trump, have to be erased completely. And the problem with that is that, that will cause great damage to the United States' interests. It will also end up dragging in American servicemen and women into a war in the Persian Gulf, which is something which would be an absolute disaster and which you can guarantee that the voters did not want when they voted for Biden. You know, if you look at polling going back over over decades, you see that the American people, a large majority of the American people are supportive of Israel. Um, and um, for whatever reason, the U.S. State Department 
has not shared that attitude. You know, the U.S. State Department is in, in the Middle Eastern branch has been dominated by Arabists and and so forth, and uh, has tended to be anti-Israel. And and it seems to me that what we're what we are likely to see with the Biden administration is those people will be back in the ascendancy. Uh, Trump was probably the most pro-Israel president we've ever had, moving the embassy and recognizing sovereignty over the Golan Heights and arranging, helping to arrange for uh, treaties, understandings with the with the Gulf Arab states. And and it seems to me that if that if if people in the Middle East are seeing, oops, wait a minute, the U.S. is now stabbing Israel in the back again. You know, there's daylight there. Uh, that 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 all that does is create the opportunity for instability. It does, and it sends a, a very dangerous signal, which is that the United States has two foreign policies, depending on which party is in power. And that is a tragedy because, you know, we used to say that these divisions stop at the water's edge, that when it comes to foreign policy, everyone is an American. But what we are seeing now is the complete splitting of the two parties. And that means if you make a deal with the United States now, you're not sure whether it will honor it four years later. You know, as for the uh, State Department, we've become used to the idea that globalization created, you know, these transnational elites, people who are more happy talking to their peers in London or Paris than they are talking to Americans. Well, the State Department always was like that. They always did aspire to be admired in the chancelleries of Europe. And so they cultivated these sort of European approaches to the Middle East, many of which, of course, turned out to be completely wrong and delusional. But that doesn't mean you can't declare them to be a policy. And that's exactly what Kamala Harris did a couple of days ago. And she said, you know, we're reopening all of this back to supporting the Palestinians, back to paying funds that they use for terrorism. The whole package that was discredited in the Obama years is being dusted off. And I don't think it's going to turn out well. Dominic Green, thanks for being with us on The Dan Prof Show. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot, Dominic. That was terrific. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. You know, one, one of my favorite whipping boys on, on Powerline and, and elsewhere is the New York Times. Uh, if you really want to see the, the far left in its screwiest manifestations, you, you almost have to follow the New York Times, not only reading the newspaper, but also following its, um, its, uh, its, its reporters and its editorialists uh, on Twitter, which is where they really show their true colors. And, and uh, a day or two ago, there was a tweet uh, by a guy named Kevin Roos. Kevin Roos is a, uh, a tech uh, columnist for the New York Times, and he's on Facebook. And he's, he's got a blue check, which is how Twitter tells you. I said Facebook, I meant Twitter. He's got a blue check, which is how Twitter tells you that he's, he's for real. You know, he's been verified. And this is what he tweeted. He says, Facebook is absolutely teeming with right-wing misinformation right now. These are all among the 10 most engaged URLs on the platform over the last 24 
hours. And he cites a data source there. And then he's got a graphic that shows you the four news stories that are among the 10 most engaged on Facebook over the last 24 hours. And he describes these as right-wing misinformation. Well, what are they? What are What does the New York Times consider to be right-wing misinformation? Well, here's one. A.G. William Barr authorizes DOJ to look into voting irregularities. Well, that's true. The Attorney General did authorize his department to look into voting irregularities. Next, uh, Purdue and Leffler call on Georgia Secretary of State to resign over election. Well, once again, that's true. They did call on Georgia's Secretary of State to resign over the election. Well, here's another one. Republican in Michigan goes from loser to winner after technical glitch fixed. Officials urge confidence in system. Well, that's true as well. That did happen. Republican did go from loser to winner after a technical glitch was fixed. And the fourth item of what this columnist at the New York Times calls right-wing misinformation. Fourth item, Michigan legislature holds rare emergency session to investigate election irregularities. Well, that also is true. The Michigan legislature did hold an emergency session for that purpose. So this is what we have come to in 21st century America at the New York Times. If you link to a news story that is obviously true, undisputed, just relates basic facts. But if you link to that news story on Facebook, you are perpetrating right-wing misinformation. So a lot of people called Kevin Roos, the New York Times guy on this on Twitter, and he, and he tweeted about it again. And he said, for the conservatives who are mad about this, yes, it is possible for a story to be factually accurate and for it to be part of a misinformation campaign aimed at undermining confidence in an election. So that's where the New York Times stands. You can't tell the truth if the truth doesn't support their agenda. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And uh, we are uh, joined now by James Bovard. Uh, James is the author of 10 books. He's a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, a frequent contributor to The Hill, and a contributing editor for American Conservative. Jim, thanks for being on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Jim, I want to start out uh, today talking about your piece, uh, Pandemic Follies, Tyranny Won't Keep Us Safe, published uh, by the uh, Future of Freedom Foundation. And I think, uh, you know, you begin this piece by pointing out that the shutdowns that have been adopted in states around the country, uh, ostensibly to combat the COVID epidemic, have wound up doing more harm than the disease. Talk about that a bit, if you would. Well, there, uh, from the start of the pandemic, there were a lot of people who said that if the government just you know, basically punishes people harder than we'll all be safe. Uh, there was a basically blind faith in the government iron fist. 
Uh, a lot of states had very severe shutdowns. Some of them are putting them back in. Uh, they managed to destroy more than 13 million jobs. Uh, but in, in spite of all the uh, sacrifices, um, more than 200,000 Americans have still died from the virus, um, many of them being older folks in nursing homes uh, that, that were killed in part because of government mandates to, uh, that nursing homes had to admit uh, COVID patients in New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Um, but part of what concerned me from the start was that, you know, you had politicians that simply had some numbers and uh, they would have a shaky, uh, shaky estimate. Well, if the infection rate continues, then we're all going to die. So therefore, we've got to put everybody under house arrest. Um, you know, Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr uh, had a great line. He said that the, the house arrest orders are the biggest civil liberties violation in American history, except for slavery. And um, it's ironic to see a lot of the folks who would normally be all in favor of civil liberties on the other side of the barricades, uh, cheering on the idea of government uh, locking people up in their houses and uh, treating anyone who steps out like a criminal. Jim, it's, just, it's amazing to me. I, until this happened, I never would have dreamed that the governor of, a, of an American state could literally issue an executive order, as in my state, Minnesota. Uh, requiring all residents of the state to stay in their houses except as allowed out by order of the governor. It's unbelievable to me that that, that happened. Well, and a part of what is uh, you know, fascinating in a uh, dark comedy kind of way is that uh, there's been so little controversy about the civil liberties violations. Uh, there, you know, Actually, I should qualify that because there have been a lot of individuals who've tried to raise hell on this, but with the mainstream media, uh, there has been a tendency to have contempt for people that criticize the lockdowns as people who did not believe in science. But the science isn't clear here. I mean, there are scientists um, who, who have pointed out that the lockdowns have not worked, that Sweden has done a, a lot better than many of the uh, other European countries that did impose lockdowns. Uh, some of the states that did not impose lockdowns are doing better than the ones that did. Um, and it's a radical change in treatment of a, a pandemic to try to lock everybody in their house. Part of what, you know, part of what confounds me is that how the media and so many of the politicians have just swept aside all of the collateral damage from these lockdowns. I mean, it's horrendous as far as the impact on students being prohibited from going to school and the politicians are pretending, well, we have distance learning. Well, they know that's a bunch of crap especially for low-income households that might not have Wi-Fi or uh, high-speed Internet or even a computer. Uh, and yet we're supposed to pretend that, that, that all these sacrifices are justified and necessary and anyone who protests uh, is a bad person. Yeah, and, and one aspect of this is that uh, the, the shutdowns have been easiest on uh, public employees who get paid anyway and, and knowledge yeah. workers who can work from home on their laptops, right? And as you point out in your in your uh, article here, almost 40% of households earning less than $40,000 a year have someone who's lost his job. That's where the, the burden has really fallen. Right. And But these are folks that the media, much of the media simply doesn't care about. I mean, they're happy to have their votes when it's time to try to topple Trump, but otherwise it's like, eh, you know, um, there's, there is such a disdain for the um, lower income folks, the uh, folks who have to go to work at their restaurant or have to go to work at the gas station, wherever. Um, and uh, it's, uh, there's a very clear split here in my county, Montgomery County, Maryland, where the 
where the county executive and council just imposed very uh, strict lockdowns again. Uh, and uh, the, the, the eastern part of the county is um, largely Hispanic, black, lower income, and most of the, most of the county is affluent and white. Um, and it's not the folks in the lower income part who are pushing for the uh, lockdown and, and the restrictions and destroying their jobs. These are the folks who are out busting their tail to try to cover their rent. But it doesn't matter to the folks who have the government jobs, a lot of government contractors as well here, paid very well for sitting at home, and I see them out walking on the street all the time with their dogs. It's like, you know, okay, yeah, this is a real hardship time for you, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Another thing has happened, certainly in my state and I think across the country, is that thousands of small businesses have been destroyed. Well, at the same time, Target, Costco, um, Home Depot, Total Wine, you know, they're all open. They're all open because they were declared essential while small businesses are being crushed. And again, it seems to be more of a, a political judgment, certainly, than a scientific one. Absolutely. And it's heart-wrenching to see so many individuals, men and women, who spent their lives to build up a business, and then the government comes along and, and, and totally arbitrary de- uh, decree and says, no, we've we've decided that you're not safe enough, but, you know, Target, other places, oh, sure, keep them open. But it's been disconcerting to me because I've joked in the past that that, uh, many Americans would not care about the loss of freedom unless the government took their, tried to take their guns and shut down their churches. Well, the government has shut down the churches. uh, And, you know, there has been some pushback, but uh, actually a lot less than I would have expected. And the level of hypocrisy, I mean, it's fine to have your um, massive protests there in Minnesota over the uh, George Floyd death, and you had the the massive celebrations here in the Washington D.C. area after the election. Uh, you know those are fine, but uh, you know to, to let the politicians have unlimited power to dictate when people can have freedom of association, it, it, it's a it's a complete travesty of the Bill of Rights. One of the things I love about your piece. Uh, uh, called uh, Pandemic Follies, is you you, you analogize it to um, The Three Musketeers, one of my favorite books when I was a kid. Uh, Cardinal Richelieu uh, gave one of his agents a, a letter that said, the bearer of this letter has acted under my orders and for the good of the state. And so that letter was carte blanche to commit any crime, to commit murder, whatever. And uh, Cardinal Richelieu had endorsed it as being for the good of the state. It was really chilling. But that's kind of what we're seeing here. I mean, every violation of the most fundamental civil liberties, the right of association, uh, the right to go to church, you know, you name it, uh, all justified. It's all supposedly in the name of science and for the, and for the good of the state. Yeah, and it's, and, um, it's a profound uh, flaw in our current political system is that the politicians and government officials who, who uh, made these dictates and did all this damage will have no liability. I mean, um, at worst, they might not get reelected or some of them might, you know, might end up having to resign, but unlikely. Um, instead, much of the media has treated people like uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer as a hero. Same with Oregon Cape Brown. I mean, Whitmer, for instance, prohibited anybody from leaving their house to visit family or friends. Uh, it was bizarre. Um, and Michigan still has gotten walloped, you know, but uh, typical, so much of the problem in Michigan was in the Detroit area and that broader area, but you know, but they devastated um, um, upstate uh, Michigan for no good yeah, reason. 
we've had the worst of both worlds. We've had the loss of civil liberties that, that wasn't even effective. It, you know, there, as you said earlier, yeah. there's been no apparent correlation between the, the shutdowns that have been entered and it actually uh, containing the spread of the virus. Yeah, and, uh, and, and there have not you know, partly because, because the media has been cheering on these ineffective policies. You have one of uh, Biden's top advisors yesterday talking about, you know, perhaps, perhaps what we should do is impose a total national lockdown for four to six weeks, and that will solve the problem. And it's like, you know, fo- you know, folks, folks last week were not voting for a dictator, or at least they, uh, they were told they weren't voting for a dictator. But where the president could get this authority, I mean, um, there was there was a, some Biden advisor was saying, well, you know, it's from the general welfare clause of the Constitution. Well, then let's just throw out, you know, let's be honest and throw out the rest of the Constitution. No, no, you're absolutely right about that. And by the way, the idea that the general welfare clause somehow, you know, justifies any order that anyone might choose to to enter, uh, you know, is ridiculous. We're talking with James Bovard, and we'll be back with more with uh, with James after these messages. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are talking with James Bovard. And Jim, I want to move on in this segment and talk about another one of your pieces, although it does tie in with the conversation we were having before that break. And this is one that you've got in the American Institute for Economic uh, Research website titled Elections and Legitimacy. And it's interesting that in the context of the 2020 election, which has been hotly disputed, there's been a lot of talk about about legitimacy. But as you point out in this in this article, um, election legitimacy is an issue that's been with us for a while. Yeah, I mean, this is the fourth election since 2000 that has been marred by either widespread allegations of voter fraud or foreign interference. Uh, politicians and the pundits talk about, well, you know, someone won the election, therefore they are a legitimate ruler. But there are more and more questions about the legitimacy of who wins elections. Going back to 2000, there was a fierce dispute in Florida between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Um, that's something that the that the Supreme Court basically intervened on. It said told Florida to stop counting votes because it would be difficult to sustain the confidence in the outcome of the election. Well, you know, this is, uh, um, that's not a good reason to stop counting votes. I mean, and it's, it's the same choice that we're probably going to face in the next coming, coming weeks as far as trying to validate the votes by which um, Joe Biden won. Uh, uh, four years later, you had Ohio fierce disputes, uh, fierce, dis- uh, fierce dis- uh, disputes, about some voting software that was used there. And, uh, Democrats made allegations that uh, George W. Bush had won solely because of that by cheating. Um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of sparks flying briefly. People forgotten that. Four years ago, you had the media and the Democrats claiming that Russia had helped uh, Trump steal the election. You had Trump's entire, first ter- entire presidency uh, shadowed by this special counsel that finally concluded that there was no evidence of collusion, um, but that served to taint his entire presidency and and helped the Democrats capture the House in 2018 and probably undermined Trump's candidacy this year. 
Um, there have been so many allegations of misconduct in elections, and yet, yet we're yet we're still told that the, whoever wins the election uh, is the um, you know has the will of the people and the consent of the governed, and you know this is a fairy tale at this point. Well, you make the observation in this in this article. I'll just quote you here. This year's presidential election may be the most fraud-ridden event since 1876, when four yeah, states I mean, had disputed results and Congress gave the presidency to Republican Rutherford uh, Hayes. Yeah, I mean, uh, the simple fact of relying on um, mail-in voting in a massive way, New York Times eight years ago said that fraud in voting by mail is vastly more prevalent than uh, in-person voting fraud. Um, I mean, how much more obvious could you get? Uh, however, it was all swept under the rug. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I think there's going to be a whole lot more fraud this year than normally. I don't know how much of it will be exposed. I also don't know if there was enough fraud to change the result of the election. But uh, I was I was amused by the Banner New York Times headline yesterday, front page. It says, um, you know, the New York Times check with election officials, no fraud anywhere. And it's like, yeah, well, that's that's reassuring. I mean, you know, um, it's amazing how far the media is scrambling to try to bury the notion of any fraud in this election. Well, the media plus social media, you know, if you if you mention voter fraud oh, God, on Facebook, yes. you know, yeah. you're uh, you are you're deep sixed. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You make a really interesting observation, though, James, and I want to talk about this a little bit. You you write perhaps the real problem with the current American political system is that elections are practically the last remaining source of apparent legitimacy. Presidents take an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. But this has long been a non-binding throwaway gesture. I think that's a really interesting point. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the the um, the core idea of, of the U.S. government was that uh, voters would choose who would follow the law and uphold the Constitution. Uh, but what we've had in recent decades, actually, probably going back to Franklin Roosevelt and Turbo Times, was that the was that the president was assumed to be entitled to all the power that he claimed to need to do what's good for the country. And so the thing that we're that we're getting is the um, presidents who become elective dictators, and this has been a problem with both parties. Um, and because of that, you have. Um, because of that, the Constitution can no, um, can no longer validate the, the system because if the president is going to violate the Americans' constitutional rights, then what did we vote for? I mean, what's the point of voting if we're just uh, choosing who's going to trample our rights? Um, but this is something that the media tend to uh, sweep under the ground. This is a sweep under the rug. Um, but, you know, if you look at Joe Biden's record, I mean, his, you know, his most famous utterance when he was – uh, a senator was locked the SOBs up. He was always pushing for new laws that trampled the Bill of Rights. Uh, his foreign policy, he's talking about getting tough with Syria. Uh, uh, how many Syrians, uh, 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 how many Syrians did people vote to kill on Election Day? Um, you know, most people weren't aware of that. But Biden could have a far more aggressive foreign policy. Uh, and um, you know, he's, uh, he is advisor talking about national shutdown. Where did the where did the president get the power for these kind of things? And it's basically pulled out of a hat and given to him by the media and his political allies and the docile judges. Uh, but this is this is unsustainable for a system, especially at a time when only 20 percent of Americans now trust the government to do the uh, right thing most of the time. And 
this is from a poll before the election. Right now, it's probably quite a bit less than 20%. It's amazing how we keep giving more and more power to institutions and people that we don't trust. You know, oh. someday, someday, maybe the conflict, the contradiction is going to get recognized. But I want to go back to a point you made, and we talked about it briefly in the last segment as well. Biden has talked about maybe ordering a national shutdown of most economic and social activity and a national mask mandate. Now, where in the Constitution is there even the glimmer of, of executive power to issue any such order? Well, that's that's a great question. And, um, you know, I don't expect to see that discussed in a New York Times editorial uh, because there is so much fear which has been fed by Biden. Uh, you know, Biden in the campaign would often exaggerate the number of people that have died from COVID by a hundred or a thousand fold. If it's once or twice, okay, it's a slip of the tongue like he often did, but there was a constant, vast exaggeration of the toll. He was campaigning on fear, and um, I would not be surprised if he tries to exploit that fear to seize far more power. However, if he does impose a national lockdown, it was uh, it would destroy whatever figment of legitimacy that he will have in January. Yeah, I think if you look back through human history uh, at, 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 at where tyranny comes from, I mean, most tyrannies uh, grow out of alleged emergencies, right? I mean, there's always an right. emergency, and this COVID one, frankly, is, is not that much of an emergency. As it was got a 99.7% uh, survival rate. This is not the Black Death, and yet it's, it's, it's the pretense for taking away our rights. Well, yeah, it, and you have politicians exploiting that. Uh, if memory serves, there was... A, there was a council out in the Bay Area in San Francisco, which dictated that, that it was going to follow up on the uh, COVID shutdown rules by forcing the people, forcing people to work at home three days a week in order, in order uh, to fight climate change. And it's like, okay, so this is a heck of a domino that's falling. And if, if politicians can get away with lockdowns for COVID, then what are they going to add to the list? James Wovard, uh, uh, thank you very much for being with us on the Dan Prof Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. There's a lot of attention being focused right now on the runoff elections, two Senate runoff elections uh, in Georgia, assuming that the recount doesn't uh, put uh, David Perdue over the top at 50 percent. I'm assuming there'll be two runoff elections and uh, they're going to be subjected to an incredible amount of scrutiny because control over the Senate is hanging in the balance if the Democrats win both of them. Uh, then it's a 50-50 Senate, which means that Kamala Harris will return to her old stomping grounds and will cast the tie-breaking vote anytime it's 50-50. So the Democrats would have a tenuous, uh, but, but you know, still would have control over the, uh, the U.S. Senate. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen for several reasons. For one thing, in both of those races, the Republicans got quite a few more votes than the Democrats. Uh, Kelly Leffler uh, actually finished second in that race, but if you add um, her votes to those of the Republican challenger, she's an incumbent senator, a guy named Doug Collins, they got quite a few more votes than the Democrat did, and, and Purdue got quite a few more votes than than uh, than his opponent. And so, and so, 
you know, one would assume that it's more likely that the Republicans will win in the in the runoff elections. Second thing is there's going to be so much focus on these races and Republicans are going to be geared up with poll watchers and everything under the sun. I think it's going to be very difficult for the Democrats to cheat this time. And I don't think they can win a statewide race in, in Georgia without uh, without cheating. And the third reason why I'm optimistic about these Georgia Senate races is that there are a lot of Americans who like to who like divided government. My friend and collaborator at Powerline, uh, Steve Hayward, likes to uh, quote his old mentor, Stanton Evans, who was in the Nixon administration, I believe, who used to say that gridlock is the next best thing to constitutional government. And I, you know, I never used to understand voters who deliberately would, would try to get, if you have a Republican president, well, let's have a Democratic House. Or if you have a Democratic president, well, let's have a Republican Senate. Voters who really preferred uh, divided government. But but I've come around on that. I've, I've come around to the idea that uh, if, if you're voting defensively, if you're mostly trying to prevent government from doing you any harm, divided government is not necessarily a bad idea. It might be your best option. And and there's a lot of independents in particular who would like to see the presidency and Congress in, in different hands. And so uh, assuming that by January, when they have the runoff election, it's going to be clear that Joe Biden is the next president, then I think a lot of independents are going to say, well, if that's the case, I don't want a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. And I think you're going to see a lot of independents voting for the Republican uh, nominees, uh, Purdue and Leffler, actually both sitting senators at this at this moment uh, on that basis. But the other thing that has not gotten anywhere near enough attention is who is running uh, in these races for uh, on the Democratic side for the U.S. Senate. One of them is the Reverend R- Raphael Warnock. And and Raphael Warnock is really a bad guy. I have not been reading this anywhere, but my partner Scott Johnson at Powerline had a post on this that was really eye-opening. And and uh, he he has a video clip from a 2018 sermon. This guy's like Jeremiah Wright. Do you remember Jeremiah Wright? Kind of a nutcase who who runs this uh, church in Chicago that the Obamas were were members of. And in 2018, he went off in a sermon on a slanderous anti-Israel tirade where he accused the Israelis of shooting Palestinians, quote, like birds of prey and comparing violent Palestinian riots to the, um, the uh, American civil rights movement and, and claiming that Palestinians are, quote, struggling for water and for their lies. And, you know, it just is just totally outside the, uh, outside the bounds of, of, of uh, mainstream American thought. And Warnock, of course, of course, has backed off from that. And he says, well, now, you know, I stand with Israel. But I think a lot of people are going to be uh, are going to be uh, seeing that statement. And, um, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot more, too, because he also signed off on a 2019 statement by the National Council of Churches which uh, likens Israeli control of the West Bank to, quote, previous oppressive regimes, close quote, and and once again brings up the South Africa slander, uh, saying that the uh, heavy militarization of the West Bank is reminiscent of the military occupation of Namibia by apartheid South Africa. And that's kind of a tell. You know, anytime somebody... Uh, publicly says that, oh yeah, Israel, that's like South Africa. That that only, not only tells you where they stand on events in the Middle East, but it tells you a lot more about that candidate and his attitudes toward the uh, 
toward the world in general. So that is the, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. And I think as more and more Georgians come to find out what this guy actually believes, um, he's going to be less and less plausible a candidate. We'll be back with more after this. You've got your passion, you've got your pride. But don't you know that only fools are satisfied? Dream on, but don't imagine they're all gone. Real now. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Francis Menton, better known to many of us as the Manhattan Contrarian. Francis, thanks for being on the program. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Francis, I don't know how many of our, our listeners are familiar with your website, uh, but uh, to our listeners, if you are not a reader of the Manhattan Contrarian, you should be. It's an excellent site, and I definitely uh, commend it to you. Francis, I want to start by talking about a post that you did um, on that site called Biden's Obnoxious Assertion That He Seeks to Unify. And uh, just talk about that, if you would, a little bit. Why, why do you think that's an obnoxious assertion? Well, the basic point I'm making here is that the entire campaign run by Biden and the Democrats was a campaign of vilifying the opposition, particularly as racists, as white supremacists, as oppressors, as enemies of the underserved and the marginalized. It's kind of hard to forget that. I mean, I, this is what they're calling me. I'm, my website is about why progressive programs don't work in substantial part, why why the anti-poverty programs have never lifted anybody out of poverty. I don't like being called a racist. I don't take well to it. And now, campaign over, we're just supposed to forget about this? The man calls for unity. His people are out there still calling me a racist. Well, not only that, is people are out there making lists of people who worked in the Trump administration or who supported Trump, people like you and me, uh, in, in hopes of preventing us from ever getting a job again. <laughs> How about that for unity? Well, I got, I got them beat because um, basically I'm retired, and you may have noticed that my website it does not have, is not really a business proposition. I don't take ads. I don't make any revenue off it. So I think I've got them beat. A number of commenters on my website, uh, and I think I'm going to join them, have suggested that we all send our names in and demand to be placed on the list. <laughs> How about you? You should do it, too. Let's Apparently demand to be placed yeah. on the list. <laughs> yes, it should be a badge of honor. Absolutely. Remember Nixon's enemies <laughs> list way back when, which is a far less sinister thing, you know, but but. The liberals were were vying, you know, to, to be on the list. Apparently, somebody actually tracked down the list as it exists so far, 12 pages long. I'm really dying to know if I'm on it. I'll be offended if I'm not. Well, you should but be. Francis, I, it I, seems to me that I think it, you're more prominent than I am. I, I, want, to, I want to achieve that. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> well, but, you know, it seems to me, Francis, we, we've, we've heard this tune before, right? I mean, any time the left talks about unity, it's like when they talk about compromise. What they mean by compromise is we give in and go along with what they want. 
And what they mean by unity is that conservatives become liberal liberals or at least acknowledge the supremacy of liberals. This is kind of a this has been a common theme for years, hasn't it? Well, yes, I, I, uh, I have a lot of blog posts back there, and a number of them I've written on this subject. Uh, compromise with the left has always meant they want to increase the size of the government by 20% right now. We're fighting to keep it at nothing. Okay, we'll compromise on a 10% increase. Next year is another 10% increase. Here's my proposal. I want to shrink the government by, say, 80%. But I'll compromise at a 10% shrinkage this year. <laughs> but, uh, of course, the trouble with this is that if one side wants to grow the government and the other wants to shrink it, there really isn't any compromise. And that's, that's kind of what our, um, our partisan division, I think, is about more than anything else right now. The, I, I don't know what the compromise is with the people who want this massive, massive increase in the size of the government. Yeah, that's part of it, I think, Francis. And you can you can analogize that in other other issues as well. You know, when President Trump said he was going to put America first, to me that sounds like a job description of a president, right? And the but the Democrats thought it was a scandal. I, I here again, I'm not sure, you know, how you compromise between trying to advance American interests uh, and 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 trying to advance sort of you know global elite interests. Where, where do where do you split the difference on that one? I don't know. I, I, all I can do with that is agree with you. I, I have no idea. Have you seen, I think it's Zeke Emanuel, uh, just in the past day or two, has suggested that it would it's just not right for this uh, new vaccine that's coming out, developed in the United States, to be uh, given first to Americans before it goes globally. Uh, we really need to uh, give it to other people in the world before Americans get it. Uh, well, that's that's the approach. That's the attitude. Similar line is uh, uh, free medical care for illegal aliens. Oh, and by the way, take an unlimited number of them. Exactly right. So, so, but but to go back to the to the to the starting point, Francis, uh, the, the the kind of ridiculousness of Biden's claim that he wants to unify. Americans, you know, what we've watched for the last four years is Democrats vilifying Donald Trump, accusing him of being a traitor, accusing him falsely of colluding with the Russians to somehow steal the 2016 election. And then their whole their whole campaign has been one of vilification. And and, you know, how how does that provide any basis uh, to to turn around now that they may have won the presidential election and say, okay, now we want unity? I don't I don't see how they're going to get it. On a related note, um, when Obama was elected president, uh, I said to all I know, it's before I had a blog, so it wasn't public, but I said I oppose everything he stands for, but he was elected. He was elected legitimately. He's my president. I wish him the best. Uh, that certainly did not happen. When Trump was elected. Now, what should be our attitude now, uh, assuming that uh, Biden's election goes through? Um, I have a hard time just saying I'm going to go along with anything this guy does. Now, 
he is my president, or assuming he his election gets certified, he is my president. I certainly won't try to undermine him by illegal means or riot in the street hey Francis, or something Francis, like Francis, we're yeah. up against a hard break. I, I want to pick this thought yeah. up and talk about it some more when we come back after these messages. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Francis Menton, the Manhattan contrarian. And before the break, Francis, we were talking about this totally insincere plea for unity, which I think just means surrender from Joe Biden and some of his minions. But, you know, when when President Trump got elected, immediately before he even took office, it was hashtag resist, right? It was resist President Trump. They never acknowledged his legitimacy as a president. They fought him every step of the way, including with the with the bizarre and false Russia collusion allegation. I don't know about you, but I'm in a mood to hashtag resist Joe Biden. What do you think about that? Well, uh, it, depending on what the meaning of the term is, um, I think if, if his election is certified, he is entitled to exercise the lawful powers of the presidency. Now, that I, I certainly am not in a mode of going out and rioting and looting like uh, Biden supporters have been doing. Uh, or otherwise engage in illegal activities like having the FBI uh, uh, try to undermine his administration. I think the FBI has to work for the president. Uh, But on the other hand, there are plenty of legal ways to resist. And um, uh, yes, I'm all for those. I would love to see Trump uh, continuing to hold rallies and uh, otherwise make trouble. I don't know if he's going to do that or not. He's entitled to uh, go off and go to sleep if he wants to. Uh, but I would love to see him making trouble or or other Republicans uh, out there making trouble and getting ready for the next time, which, by the way, the next congressional elections, let alone the next presidential election, have great potential for the Republicans. Well, I think you're right. I think you have to predict a good likelihood that the GOP takes over the House and continues to hold the Senate. I'll tell you one thing, Francis. I don't want to see Mitch McConnell and the Republican senators uh, doing anything they don't have to do to to cooperate with Joe Biden. What do you think about that? Well, uh, yeah, let's ask this question. I think one of your co-bloggers there at Parallon, Miringoff, has actually written about this. How do you feel about confirming uh, the cabinet? How do you feel about confirming... Uh, other executive branch positions? How do you feel about confirming judges? Uh, Those are things they don't have to do. They could just not do any of it. They could not confirm a single judge or a single cabinet member. Now, I don't think they should do that, and I think some people like Lindsey Graham have already come out and said, no, he's entitled to have a cabinet. Uh, Okay, but is he entitled to have Elizabeth Warren in his cabinet? I don't think so. I think they're in, entirely entitled to shoot that down. Uh, is he entitled to have Bernie Sanders in his cabinet? I don't think so. 
Uh, and similarly with judges, they can they can exercise some real control. And, and by the way, the Democrats are defending a lot more seats in the Senate two years from now than the Republicans are. So there are great opportunities for pickups there. Thank you very much, Francis Menton, for being on the Dan Prof Show. We will be back with more after these messages. My pleasure. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by George Perry. George is a former federal and state prosecutor, a regular contributor to the American Spectator, and he also writes at the website knowledgeisgood.net, and he is from the uh, Philadelphia area, very much in the news these days. George, thanks for being on the program. Nice to be with you, John. George, you wrote a couple of pieces in The Spectator that actually predate the election, but look really prescient right now. And the first of them is called Stealing Pennsylvania. And so you were already already writing before the election about the things that the Democrats were doing in Pennsylvania to, to try to ensure their victory there. Talk about that a bit, if you would. Yeah, well, what happened uh, in late September of this year, uh, the... Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and understand that we elect our judges in Pennsylvania. Four Democrats on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, basically changed the election law here in Pennsylvania regarding uh, mail-in ballots. And what they did was, uh, under the election law is written by the legislature, which is under the U.S. Constitution, and it's the legislature that makes the rules on elections. <clears throat> the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in acting in concert with the uh, Democrat Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, extended the deadline for receipt of mail-in ballots from the election day deadline. They extended that by three days. That was the first case. And then in a subsequent ruling, the same four justices on the Democrat justices on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did away with the requirement that the signature on the envelope in which the ballot, the mail-in ballot is received, must match the signature of the voter on record. So, so George, let me just let me just stop you. Let me just stop you for a second there, George, because this seems to me to be yeah. really important. So, so you know, yeah. I'm not sure how they did it in Pennsylvania, but you know, in in a lot of states, they just mailed out thousands, millions of of ballot applications or even ballots mm-hmm. to names and addresses. You know, they may be dead, they may have moved. You know, who knows? But they just they send them yeah. out, and the only check they've got, one of these things comes back in the mail. And, you know, who knows who actually filled out the ballot. But the only check they've got is, is that the voter has to sign the ballot and they can at least check the signature against the signature they have on file to, ver- to verify that it's the it's the right guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did was they said, 
Well, if the signatures don't match, that is, the signatures on the ballots don't match the signatures on the record, the presumption will be that the ballot is valid, but it's a rebuttable presumption, meaning anyone challenging that ballot can bring in other proof. Well, we're dealing with with millions of these mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, and if you can't do a signature, if the signature comparison isn't enough to to challenge or invalidate the ballot, then the challenger has got to come up with what kind of proof. You bring in two million voters, you bring in handwriting experts. That issue is not addressed by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But what what that has resulted in uh, is just utter chaos here in Pennsylvania. Uh, the you the Republicans in in Pennsylvania before the election applied to the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's mandate changing these rules, and the U.S. Supreme Court in a four-four tie with Chief Justice Roberts, the savior of Obamacare, siding with the liberals on the court, voting against the stay and the four conservatives voting for the stay. So you had a tie in the U.S. Supreme Court, and therefore the action of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was allowed to stand. So now they're going back, that is the Pennsylvania Republicans are going back to the U.S. Supreme Court, <clears throat> and what has changed is Amy Coney Barrett is now on the court. And the issue becomes... Will the U.S. Supreme Court, will a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court invalidate these mail-in ballots? Now, that is a far larger and thornier question than the Supreme Court before the election correcting the illegal changes that were made to the law. Because the argument, the counterargument that can be made here by the Democrats is, well, good, bad, or indifferent. Those were the rules that were in place when people cast their mail-in ballots. They had a right to rely on those rules, and you can't come along and disenfranchise all those people who submitted mail-in ballots pursuant to the altered rules. And there was a similar case out of South Carolina where three of the conservative justices said, no, we would toss out all the ballots. But Justices Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts went along with allowing the ballots up to the point in time that were cast up to that point in time before the rules were corrected because they were they were voting in advance by mail-in ballots in South Carolina. And so it's problematic as to whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take any action to invalidate these mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. Do we know, George, how many ballots we're talking about that came in after Election Day, but within that three-day window that the Supreme, the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just made up out of whole cloth? The current uh, estimate is around six hundred thousand in that in that range. And uh, look, if six hundred thousand mail-in ballots get tossed, Pennsylvania goes for for Trump because the Republicans showed up in a tidal wave on election day to vote in person. And the Democrats leaned heavily on this whole mail-in ballot business. So that there, if the Supreme Court invalidates the 
legislate or rights, Trump wins. The question is, will they do that? And that's anybody's guess. And that's, that's the first round of, of challenges. There's been a lawsuit filed in federal court here based on an equal protection claim similar to that advanced in the Bush v. Gore litigation down in Florida in 2000. And in that complaint, the Republicans are saying that the state election officials illegally established a de facto illegal two-tiered voting system. And by that, they mean that people who showed up in person to vote, those persons were subjected to signature matching. They had to vote in a polling place, monitored as provided in the state statutes by poll observers from both parties. And they had their votes, in the words of the complaint, counted in a transparent and verifiable open and observed manner. In contrast to the way the in-person voters have been treated, under the modified rules here in Pennsylvania, the Democrats have have just eliminated nearly every element of transparency and verifiability for nearly 2.65 million mail-in ballots. And they add to this, not only by the change in the rules, but by the fact that in Philadelphia counties, Philadelphia County and Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is located, the two big Democrat strongholds, the canvassers from the Republican parties, that is the watchers who were supposed to be able to observe the processing of these ballots, they were prohibited from doing so. In Philadelphia, for example, they erected steel barriers and the Republican watchers had to stay behind the steel barriers a a minimum of 30 feet away and in some instances 150 feet away from the farthest tables. They couldn't see anything. And the same thing happened in Allegheny County. So the argument being advanced by the Republicans in their federal lawsuit in Pennsylvania is once the ballots are taken out of the envelope where the signature, the voter signature is, once that happens and it's not done under conditions where both sides can monitor the process and examine the ballots and and the envelope, those became invalid. George, we're up against a hard break, and I want to hold that thought because I really want to follow up on that when we come back after these messages. Okay. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking with George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, who is a native of uh, Philadelphia. And we're talking about what happened at this election in Pennsylvania. And George, before the break, we were talking about the uh, federal lawsuit that's been filed by the Trump campaign and a couple of individuals. Uh, and they, they complain about a number of things. But I would say the number one thing in that complaint is that in, in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh, those two counties, 
Republican uh, poll watchers were not allowed to do their statutorily mandated jobs. You know, the, the, the Pennsylvania law says that the party's got a right to observe the, you know, the, the validation and the counting of these absentee or mail-in ballots. And, and they just prevented that from happening, either by physically barring them from the premises or after, in one case, the Republicans got a court order, they let them into the building, but stationed them so far away they couldn't see anything. And so, and so, the relief that the uh, Trump campaign is asking for in that case, among other things, is to throw out all of those ballots that were counted with in violation of the law, which I think is clear, without an opportunity mm-hmm. to participate by a Republican poll watcher. And I think we're talking about 680,000 votes in that category. Yeah. And my question to you, George, is, number one, does that remedy make sense to you as a as a lawyer? And number two... Is there any chance in the world that any judge is going to do that? Well, the remedy uh, is, is a legal matter. Yeah, I, I think there's merit to that. But look, I was I, I was a trial lawyer for 50 years, and I'd be I would be amazed if they could get a judge to throw out 680 thousand ballots in an election. I mean, I understand the legal argument. I think it's a sound legal argument. But from the standpoint of getting a judge to take that kind of draconian action, I think it's a real long shot. Now, the judge in question was appointed by Barack Obama in 2012 to the federal bench. That's the bad news. The good news is he's a lifelong Republican involved in Republican politics and a member of the Federalist Society. And we had a we had a compact between the Republican senator and the Democrat senator here in Pennsylvania to kind of divide up the judicial appointments. And that's how this guy wound up being appointed or nominated by Obama. Having said all that, I think it would take a tremendous amount of courage and daring for that judge to say to the Republicans, you know, you make a good argument and by golly, we're throwing out those ballots. But whichever way this judge decides the case, I would expect a direct appeal given the the time constraints. I would, I would imagine there would be a direct appeal by either side right to the Supreme court of the United States to raise the issue there This judge is going to have to make some findings of fact, and if he finds, well, as a matter of fact, the poll watchers were excluded, the Republicans were excluded from the counting process. So if if that's the fact that gets sent up to the Supreme Court, then it becomes a question, well, what's the Supreme Court going to do about it? That's the second major front that we have going. But we're not done yet, because in addition to all of that, the Pennsylvania legislature, where both houses of the legislature, the state Senate and the House of Representatives, are controlled by the Republicans. Six days ago, the Speaker of the House sent a letter to the governor listing all of the illegal activities that have gone on and the, um, you know, the barring of the uh, observers from the count, uh, the illegal changes that were made 
by the Democrats to the uh, election laws and so forth and so on. And they said, look, in, in light of all of this, we're requesting that there be an audit of the election, of all the ballots cast in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> now, the ball is in the governor's court. The Secretary of State could say, yeah, we're going to have, we're going to audit this, and they'll get to go back through all of, the, all of the votes. I don't know if that could result in a change of any of these mail-in ballots because they've already been separated from the envelopes in which they arrived. So I don't know if a, an audit would cure any of these problems. But if the governor or the secretary of state certifies the election results without the audit, then the Republicans in the legislature could, and this is just a, this is just a rumored possibility, select and elect their own slate of electors to go to the Electoral College. And if that happens, we'll be, we'll be on the verge of a civil war here in Pennsylvania. But that is the ultimate club that the legislature has in this. So those are the three things that are going on in Pennsylvania right now. All of it was avoidable. If only the state Supreme Court and the Secretary of State had not the rules leading up to the election. And if they had only adhered to the election law as it's written and on the books. And key to that is allowing the observers, the Republican observers, to observe the processing of the mail-in ballots. So we have a three-front war going on here in Pennsylvania, and it's anybody's guess how any of this is going to turn out, because this was just manufactured chaos brought about by the Democrats. We're talking with uh, with George Perry. George, we've got just under two minutes left. Um, you did another piece in The Spectator called uh, Voter Fraud Harvesting Granny. And among other things in that piece, you you hearken back to your own experience going back to the 1970s in Philadelphia and, and the prevalence of voter fraud that you personally observed at that time. Uh, voter fraud is not new, especially in these urban, you know, these big city democratic machines. It's been around since you know, for going on 150 years. But but this year, and, and a point you make in your in your piece is mail-in voting opens the door wider to fraud than anything we've ever had in the past. And that that's a big part of the story this year, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, Jimmy Carter uh, and I think it was James Baker chaired a commission however many years ago where they addressed the issue of mail-in ballots and they said, look, these things are easily uh, manipulated and can be faked, and it's an open invitation to fraud. And that was the bipartisan commission. But we have now launched ourselves on what could be the last time a Republican has ever had a chance of becoming president if we're going to continue to use tens of millions of these mail-in ballots in our elections. The, the and the the problems are you know if, if you want to harken back say to my experiences in the 1970s in in Philadelphia. George is, Perry, we're we're up beyond. against a we're up against a hard break here, George. But thank you so much for being on the Dan Proft show. 
We'll be right back after okay, these Dan, messages. Okay, okay, John. Nice talking with you. Yep. Thanks a lot, George. We can dance. We can dance. Everybody's taking the chance. Listen to the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined in this segment by Andrea Widberg, Deputy Editor at The American Thinker. Andrea, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Andrea, we've been talking a lot about, obviously, the 2020 election, the aftermath, the ongoing election, and, and, and serious doubts about the honesty of the election. And I want to ask you about a couple of posts that you've got at The American Thinker on that topic and the, the first one is called Mathematical Impossibilities May Be What Trips Up Democrat Plans. Tell our readers what you're talking about there. What are the mathematical impossibilities? Well, I have to say, if the readers go to that post, I've actually moved beyond it because it, the, 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 the breadth of the fraud is huge. And so there are two things people need to consider about election fraud because they're actually two types. First is what goes into the system. Uh, that is what people see. It's ineligible ballots. We hear about the dead people, the identity thieves, the ballots that are just made up out of whole cloth in back rooms. And those are, there is a random quality to it. It's in precinct A or precinct B. They do it this way. It happens more in states where they had universal mail-in, where every single person in the state got a ballot not every single person, every single registered voter in the state got a ballot without regard for whether they died. Tucker did a, a, a segment on uh, Wednesday night talking about all of those dead people ballots. And then there are just counting problems if there's paper stuff, poll workers can fake things. But the big problem is computers nowadays in the election. And computers are black boxes. We don't know what's going on inside. We're hearing about glitches in Michigan and glitches here and glitches there. But these are not glitches because the computers are functioning correctly. It's not as if the computer suddenly started spitting out random code and gibberish or stop, as we all know from our computers at home. The, the outcomes we're getting are not glitches. They are garbage in, garbage out outcomes where there is a program that is creating a fraudulent outcome. And... What we know is that certain computers and operating systems are capable of being manipulated very easily. There's a guy on Twitter with the handle at CodeMonkeyZ, the letter Z, and he's been reading the Dominion Manual and discovered that the system is exceptionally vulnerable to manipulation. Uh, the same seems to be true. Let me just pause you for a second there, Andrea. When you say the Dominion Manual, explain what, what you're talking about there. Oh, I am sorry. Thank you. Dominion is a voting machine that is extremely common in America, and it has become a target of people worried about the election because a lot of the weird outcomes have occurred in jurisdictions with Dominion machines. And the New York Times just did a, an article the other day saying, not happening. In every place where this happened, uh, it was human error, which may well be. But the fact is, human error can mean that humans 
deliberately or accidentally stuck in code that came out wrong. What argues against it just being mere error is that all of these stories, every last one, runs in the direction of favoring Biden over Trump. That ceases to be random. And you're not hearing stories out of states that Trump won where Democrats are saying, well, you know, we had those, you know, it was a glitch and things like that happened. And so systems that can be easily manipulated, the problem is, and this is where we get to the math, and I'm not a math person, but I get logic. We can't actually see the manipulation. You might have to take apart the, 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 the uh, voting machine to see the manipulation. But what we can see are fingerprints of manipulation. Um, the data that comes out can be statistically analyzed, and it turns out that machines are lousy liars because they create patterns. They are mindless. They do what they're told to, and it inevitably creates linear patterns that are abnormal. And one of the things that I wrote about when I said that the fraud may be deeper than we think is it turns out that on one system, the ES&S system, which is all over America, that the data is put onto a, um, a domain that is just on Amazon. It just sits there. It's as secure as any other Amazon domain, but it's not a super secure domain. And then the information is run through European processing and Russian processing centers. Again, that doesn't mean Europe and Russia are manipulating our votes. It means that everything is easy to access, easy to change, and that the fingerprints can be offshore. They don't even have to be in America where anyone can see them. Andrea, we are up against a break here, but let's just hold that thought, and we're going to continue uh, with uh, Andrea Whitberg when we come back after these messages on The Dan Prof Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Andrea Widberg. And Andrea, before the break, you, you, you were saying that in your view, the, the biggest problem in the 2020 election is not so much with dead people voting and these kinds of things, but, but really lies in the world of computers, uh, which are, in your view, uh, highly susceptible to, um, to manipulation. Why, why don't you just pick it up where you left off before the break? I will. And the thing about computers is, on the one hand, it seems very scary because they can do massive scale manipulation. On the other hand, as I was saying, they're, they're lousy liars. And regarding massive manipulation, the, all the stuff going into the black box where human beings are submitting fraudulent ballots, the problem with that, as we know from all the affidavits across America, is it's picking up little bits and pieces. And so what, the New York Times goes, well, that's just one thing or one error or one person. It means nothing. With the computers, if you know how to look for the data, as I am discovering by reading other people, you can see trends. So one of the things everybody hears about is, and I'm pulling a complete blank if it's Benford or Benfield, but that trend showing when elections have been manipulated. And I actually find that one quite confusing. I know 
the outcome, which is that there's a, a, a smooth line in a normal election where integers follow a predictable pattern. And when an election has been manipulated, the integers start bouncing around like crazy. And that's all I understand of it. I'm sorry yeah, this to is, say. This, this, is Benford's, gets, this is Benford's law, right? In, in, in numbers, right. The, the first integer is most likely to be a one and least likely to be a nine. And so a normal yes. you know, series of numbers will, will show that pattern. And in this case, the Trump numbers do, but the Biden numbers in some states don't. I, I don't really understand Benford's law and why that's true, but that's what a number of people have, have written. Right. And apparently the Benford maven said, uh, yeah, but you can't, it's for long haul, it's like for years long as a computer of business manipulation, and so it doesn't count. But others have pointed out that it has been, it's been used before to show election anomalies. What I found a lot more interesting is patterns. When patterns break, that's just one kind of pattern. But for example, uh, a guy named Shiva Ayodurai, whom leftists despise, he's an MIT multiple PhD, an engineer, an entrepreneur, a conservative. And he did something very interesting with his team. They took the looked at the results from every precinct in four counties in Michigan. And, you know, Michigan is one of the big contested places. And what they discovered, I can give you the bottom line. There's a video that you can find at uh, his website, which I believe is drshiva.com or shiva.com. What they discovered is an absolute perfect unnatural pattern. In the three precincts, in the three counties with uh, Republican precincts, the more the votes came in, the more Republican a precinct was, the fewer the random voting for Trump. So instead of seeing, you should have had a straight line where in the precincts, the, the, the more Republican, you'd have votes all bouncing around the mean, a meme, a straight line in the middle, an average, and in the Democrat precincts within the county, all the, the votes sort of bouncing around an average line. It should have been a straight line. But what was very peculiar is the more Republican a precinct was, the more the votes deviated in Biden's favor. And the deviation created an absolute pattern. It wasn't a random deviation. It was like watching a ski slope. You look at the graph and the more Republican the precinct, the more the Biden votes. That straight line is a giveaway of a computer. As I said, they're lousy liars. You cannot program them to randomness. That's one of the things about computers. You give them an instruction and they will follow it and they will break through randomness. And what's also very significant about this, and it's, it's you're, what people don't understand because a lot of people say, well, at 3 a.m., all the, the mail-in ballots started being counted and only Democrats did mail, and which we know is not true, especially in states that did not allow in-person voting, like New Jersey, where you have to get a waiver to vote in person. But the other thing we're seeing, which is a computer thing, we're not seeing systems where there's a speed up and a slow down, where Trump was going very fast getting votes, and then he sort of fell back, and Biden suddenly started picking up and getting more votes. What we're seeing is one-on-one -on -one switches. Shiva Ayodura found that in uh, the what, Michigan what, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean, one-on-one -on -one switches? I'm not, I'm not following you there. What he discovered is at a certain point, suddenly Trump lost X number of votes and Biden gained X number of votes. It was as if the votes were pulled out of Trump's basket 
and just put into Biden. That's not how voting works. What you would normally have is Trump was getting a lot of votes and then it slowed to a trickle. And meanwhile, Biden picked up. And over time, Biden overtakes Trump. What you're seeing is in a split second, suddenly a bunch of votes that were Trump's magically appeared in Biden's box. Now, is this like, like the, 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 the is this like the famous hundred thousand or whatever it was in in Wisconsin that showed up at I think it was Wisconsin four thirty in the morning or something? Is that that phenomenon or is that something different? Well, it could be because that was that we're also seeing massive numbers of vote shifts where suddenly Biden got a hundred percent of the votes, which is again an unnatural pattern. Now that could mean that just someone dumped a hundred thousand ballots that have all been hand filled. But that could also have been that the system started changing things because it was programmed to do so. It was given an algorithm. And one of the things people have pointed out is that in most of the contested states, at one at 3 a.m., they just suddenly stopped. And that was also right. when it was clear that Trump had a massive lead. And again, instead of getting a natural thing where Biden overtook Trump, which would be a natural shift in fewer Trump votes, more Biden votes. There is a just a big black line slashed through at that time where suddenly everything went to Biden. So what you're looking for, what computers do is they create patterns. And if you have all 50 states, if you could look at the patterns in all 50 states and 40 of them have predictable patterns and 10 of them, the congested ones, suddenly go off in wild ways that are utterly unrelated to the patterns of the other 40 states. It strikes me you don't really, people are saying, well, that's a bad test because you're stripping the wrong numbers. Those numbers don't count because you stripped them at one o'clock and not at three o'clock. Those numbers don't count. But the only thing that really counts with computers when you're looking for fraud is patterns. Andrea, we're going to, we're up, we're up against a break here, Andrea. So we are going to have to leave it there for now. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for being on the Dan Fox show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. One of the obvious features of the 2020 election is that the polls were way off. I think the polls were, were farther off this year than they were in 2016. I think it's deliberate, honestly. I don't think the pollsters are so inept that they were that far off in their projections. And, and what you saw happening, and it happened to some degree in 2016 as well, if you go three months before the election, they're saying, oh, it's Biden by 12, it's Biden by 15, it's Biden by 11. You know, these totally unrealistic margins. I mean, there's no way uh, anybody could have believed the polls that were coming out in the summer and the early fall. And then as you get toward Election Day, that last week or so, the last week or two, all of a sudden they come out with polls that are more realistic and maybe Trump's within the margin of error. And they say, oh, well, Trump has Trump has tightened. You know, the, the race is tightening. Trump is gaining. Well, I think that may have been true. I think Trump probably was uh, closing in the last couple of weeks. But I really believe that pollsters jiggered their formulas because it's all based on, on your, your prediction about what the turnout is going to be, what the electorate is going to look like. Uh, and if you tweak that, well, you can have the same 
you can have the people you call on the telephone giving you the same answers, but now you'll come out with different numbers because you're using a different assumption about what the composition of the electorate is going to be. So you oversample Democrats, then you stop oversampling Democrats, and you get different results. And I think that happened this year. But one one persistent question is, are there the so-called shy Trump voters, or as they say in the UK, in Britain, the shy Tory voters, the people who are going to vote for the conservative candidate, the Republican candidate, but don't want to tell the pollster. And it does appear, people who have studied the data uh, have found that it does appear that there are a pretty significant number of people who get called by pollsters and don't tell them the truth. And and so there's been some analysis, and, and my partner on Powerline, Steve Hayward, uh, wrote a post about this, uh, who were the shy Trump voters. And it turns out that some of the shy Trump voters are members of minorities who are constantly getting beaten up on, you know, you have to vote for a Democrat or you're not really black. I mean, that's what Joe Biden, he came out and said that, you know, if you don't vote for me, you're not black, you know. And so not surprisingly, there are a certain number of minority voters. We know that, did, that Trump did relatively well with minority voters uh, this year compared to past past elections. And so that really isn't surprising. But 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 the surveys have found that there's another group of shy Trump voters. Who are they? The answer is suburban college-educated women. And this, I think, I find this kind of ironic. There are apparently a fair number of suburban college-educated women who won't tell pollsters they're voting for Donald Trump because they're not supposed to, because their friends would be appalled if they did, but who, in fact, do go out and vote for President Trump. So suburban college-educated women are now in the same category with with blacks and and Hispanics in that uh, social pressures are preventing them from saying what they really think about the about the political scene. I think one of the really interesting questions going forward in American politics is going to be this shy voter syndrome that helps to throw off the polls. Is this only about Donald Trump or are we going to see this with Republican voters in, in future elections? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to find out. Well, thank you for being with us on the Dan Proft Show. Uh, I'm John Hinderocker and I'll be back with you again tomorrow night. This is the Dan Proft Show.